This is episode 52 of Alohomora for October 12th, 2013. Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. I'm Laura Riley. And I'm Kat Miller. And we want to welcome everybody who's watching this live on Google Hangout. Um, obviously, if you're listening to this two days from now, it's not live. But when we recorded it on Thursday at 4 p.m., it was live. So thank you everyone for joining us. Um, just want to let you know we're like not going to... Um, take comments or anything on this show this is basically just for you guys to get like a behind the scenes look on how we record the uh the, the podcasts well um thank you everyone for joining or if you're not just listening regardless uh here's a reminder to read chapter 14 which is the unforgivable curses in order to fully enjoy this episode but as usual we start off with our discussion from last week's episode which was chapter 13 um so let's get right in there and the first comment comes from Stone Hallows, and it's about Trelawney's predictions, which we were discussing last week. And they say, I just had a crazy thought. We know that when Trelawney is talking about Harry's birthday, we can assume she's actually sensing the bit of Voldemort's soul latched onto Harry. Well, what if that is the case here as well? What if the little piece of soul, the Horcrux, the magical act that is supposed to make Voldemort immortal, is still fearing death? What if that is what Trelawney is actually talking about when she says that it will come to pass? She seems to get general sensings of things most of the time, and we only see definite carved-out predictions twice in the series. Even though that piece of soul is tiny, Voldemort feared death above everything else, and that fear would still be in that little piece of soul. Um, if that was so powerful that Trelawney picked, it up, picked up on it, um, she might think it was coming from Harry, not knowing what it was about though she would use, uh, though she would inst- instead be her usual vague self. So the comment saying that the little prediction that she says that Harry is worrying about something and it will come to pass soon, she's saying that that is actually Trelawney picking up on Voldemort's worries. What do you guys think about that? I think that's clever. I um, I guess I wouldn't have thought of it like that. What is his? What's his? What's he worrying about though? Well, th- we were discussing that we didn't really know what Harry was worrying about. Um, last week. So this is saying that Voldemort's kind of ultimate worry is that he is, you know, afraid of death. Um, so the comment here is trying to say that Trelawney is picking up on Voldemort's fear of death and ultimately predicting that he will die at the end of the series. I think in order to believe this, like we have this discussion um, about whether or not she was picking up on his birthday. So I think you know, you'd have to definitely, like, agree that that she was picking up on his birthday in order to then move to this statement. So last time, I didn't agree that she was picking up on that necessarily. So I, I kind of think it's a bit of a stretch just because, uh, because he's saying, oh, that thing you fear will come to pass. Like, yeah, eventually it's very you're gonna vague. die. <laughs> eventually everyone's gonna die. So when is soon and when's not soon. So, uh, I don't know. I think it's very clever. I don't think I'd buy it, though. I wonder if the fear is more something about the plan and if it's not going to work instead of death overall. Yeah, because ultimately, you know, he never manages to kill Harry at the end of this at the end of this book, which is what he was kind of planning. So the plan does fail in some ways. Right. That I mean, that would make more sense. I think my thought is that we get so such a distinct um, 
description of Trelawney when she's making a legit prediction um, to contrast like her usual self, which I think we can almost always assume that it's, well, I guess we can't because Trelawney does predict um, the, the rabbit's death accurately. So I guess she's good sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's true. If you call that accurate. Yeah. Do you think the <laughs> bigger part of Voldemort's plan, like which is the more, the higher priority in that, because you were saying, oh, his plan to kill Harry. Do you think his bigger plan is to kill Harry or to rise? Priority number one would definitely be to get his body back, which he obviously does manage. Um, but I think that closely linked to that is trying to kill Harry in that one go. Because if he managed to do both of those things at once, then, you know, he can take over the world a lot easier. Um, and it's the whole secret part of it as well. Doesn't Dumbledore say at the end of the book that um, he that Harry escaping managed to kind of foil him and that's why he's quiet and kind of trying to sneak back into the wizarding world rather than kind of triumphantly saying I'm back, be afraid. Um, but going back to Trelawney's gift, the next comment is actually linked to this as well and it's by Hufflepuff Skeen um, and it says this got me thinking about Trelawney's gift or sight. Her accurate predictions only concern Harry or his Voldy soul bit or Voldemort himself. Could it be possible that her gift is only reflective of future eventualities associated with their connection? Could her sight be intrinsically tied to the extreme magic that surrounds their connection, and somehow it is what inspires or engenders her predictions? We know of three predictions or visions that are at least accurate, even if she misinterprets them. These are Voldemort and the child of um, and the child of parent who thrice defied him. Um, the servant would rejoin his master, which some people say is Wormtail and some people say is Barty Crouch Jr. Um, and this latest premonition, which is related to Harry's boldy soul bit, not entirely <laughs> sure what they mean by this third one, but yeah. Um, they all concern the circumstances of Harry and Voldemort's connection and thus make me think that her gift is directly tied to it. Jumping a little farther down the rabbit hole, what if predictions or the act of divination can be affected by particularly significant future events? i.e. Some, some kind of cosmic magic force compels the divination of potentially catastrophic or immensely impactful future events in the, pre in the present through mediums like Trelawney. Not to suggest some divine force, but just perhaps the energetic effect of such significant effects as Voldemort's attempt on Harry's life, Lily's powerful love magic, Voldemort's rebirth and their final battle, all coalesce as future eventualities that affect Trelawney in present visions. That was a long comment. <laughs> Um, to put this in a slightly easier way of, of perhaps understanding, um, which I think Kat will now get, but I'm not sure the others will because it's a Doctor Who reference. <laughs> um, think Bad Wolf when the, the, in, in the end of, um, the first series of the new series is, um, Rose uses the words Bad Wolf to scatter through time and give her and the Doctor clues, um, to a later eventuality. So this is saying that the, the massive magical event of Harry and Voldemort's, you know, final battle, whatever, kind of scattered itself through time, spiderwebs, um, and allowed Trelawney to kind of pick up on these little events through her predictions. I had to read this comment like four times in order to understand <laughs> it. Um, I feel like it's one of those like massive ideas that mm -hmm. we could probably talk about for four hours by itself. But I think overall, the overall general concept of this, I agree with, um, and it intrigues me, I think, to think about the fact that Trelawney is connected to Harry and Voldemort's connection is super interesting. And yeah. it makes sense to me. I'm not sure of the specifics, but I think I think that's it. It makes sense. 
Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think Joe set up the story to to leave plenty of room for that to be correct. I think it's definitely really interesting, though, like, to have one particular kind of event that is the one thing that you can actually make predictions of as a medium is a really interesting idea. Yeah. Like, there's some kind of fate aspect involved, which is I think it probably all started when she made the um, prophecy in the first place. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that's probably safe to say. But do you think that's where it started or just where it's like she picked up on it? Because I think the, the comment saying that all of the predictions are linked in with this event rather than that first prediction being the event itself. I'm not sure. It's like <laughs> complicated. <laughs> it, it's incredibly complicated. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'll have to think on that one more. We could have a Stop whole show this. just on this comment. Right. We could. <laughs> that was a really good comment. That's what's so awesome is like people come up with these comments that we would have never thought of that could be like yeah. hour long discussions. <laughs> nice. have Several hours. The whole point long. of Alohomora. Keep having <laughs> those discussions on the forums. It's a place for it. So. Yes, please. This next comment is actually also fairly intellectual, but it's a really interesting one as well. Um, moving from Doctor Who to perhaps Game of Thrones with Winter yes. is coming. Oh, good. You guys will finally get a a reference. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is saying that um, this is about the idea of the born into winter um, or summer child idea that we were saying Mm. Voldemort is winter and Harry is summer. So this is from Jess Fudd, and it says about the born in winter thing. um, I know that it's used literally in reference to the alignment of the planets, but if you think about the symbolic meaning of winter... Harry really was born at the coldest, lowest, deadest point in Voldemort's reign of terror. It was his survival of the killing curse and subsequent disappearance of Voldemort that marked the beginning of spring, or rebirth, in the magical world. I think Trelawney stumbles onto lots of accurate predictions, but she has no control over her understanding of her gift. I think J.K. uses her as uh, uses her for ex- exhibi- exposition. That one. Um, we don't even know uh, we're getting. I love the cookie crumbs sprinkled throughout the series that only makes sense on rereads. OGM for sure. <laughs> OGM so, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so rather than talking about literal winter and summer here, we're talking about winter as in the dark time, as in Voldemort's reign, and then summer and spring being the rebirth of the magical world in a peacetime in the middle. A dream for sp- of spring. That's going to really be the nice last idea. title of the book Game of Thrones series, so I had to throw it in there. <laughs> this is something, again, um, that I had never thought of, and like our listeners continually blow my mind. This thought, <laughs> just this comment, it's incredible. Okay, so moving on to the next one. Um, we were discussing in last week's podcast um, about the kind of bad reputation that Slytherin gets in the books um, and the possibility of good Slytherins, and this is a comment from the aptly named Slytherin Prefect. Um, And it says, as a Slytherin, I love that people are recognising the disservice that the house has been given in the books. Um, I find it really interesting to look at Slytherins who are different from the stereotypical view. As mentioned, Narcissa largely fits into this category. However, I feel the most obvious example is actually her sister. Andromeda grew up in the the Black family with Bellatrix as a sister, um, and yet she followed her heart and married Ted Tonks. She helped the Order and raised Tonks who went on to become a successful Aura. Um, we don't really know a lot about Andromeda herself, but, it, but it's clear that she is not your stereotypical Slytherin. Sirius also comments that she always treated him with respect and kindness. 
even when she was sorted, uh, even when so he she's was definitely sorted in Slytherin. I was about to yes, ask, we do we know, know for sure Andromeda was in Slytherin? According to the Harry Potter wiki, she was definitely sorted into Slytherin. She was actually blasted off the tap- tapestry, wasn't she? But I think Sirius says that that only happened when she married Ted. Um, right. So she was still on there while she was at Hogwarts. And I always seem to forget about Andromeda. Um, <laughs> but that's a really good example of the, yeah. you know, the Slytherin debate. And I agree, like, not all Slytherins are bad people, as I've continually said about Draco, you know. I don't think he's as bad as he comes off to be. I find Andromeda a really interesting character because she is so often kind of overlooked by people, even though we do actually meet her within the books. Um, And uh, speaking from a fanfiction perspective, she was a character who was explored quite a lot before we actually met her. Um... And her physical resemblance to Bellatrix was really surprising when we actually got that um, snippet of information when we saw her in the books. Um, I never expected her to kind of look almost like her twin that Harry has such kind of a strong um, reaction to. In most fan art that existed before that time, um, we had a really nice kind of um, triplicate idea of the three sisters where you had Narcissa who was blonde and kind of willowy um, you had Bellatrix, who was the dark-haired, kind of crazy-looking wildness. Um, and then you had um, Andromeda, who was always, almost always pictured as a redhead. And you had her kind of looking um, like, um, I guess, like, again, going back to Game of Thrones, like the red, um, the red woman in Game of Thrones. I can't remember her name right now. That's really bad. So you had this kind of really nice image of all the three sisters being very individual, but kind of tied together in this... Um, circle, I guess. That would be incredible if there was a family who had three girls who was blonde, One each. black, and a redhead. Complete the set. <laughs> right, that would be a, an incredible gene pool. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> but in the realms of fiction, it's more possible. <laughs> no, absolutely. Also with hair dye. No, that's absolutely true. Um, we know that our people, or I guess Harry Potter wiki, assumes that Andromeda is in Slytherin. They use mm-hmm. a quote from Slughorn that's where he says, the whole black family had been in my house, but Sirius ended up in mm-hmm. Gryffindor. So like using that to extrapolate that Andromeda yeah. then had to be in Slytherin, which is kind of a an assumption, but I guess we'll go with it. Is she, I mean, she's around the same age as Bella, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Slughorn taught them? I would assume for sure. so. Yeah. I would assume so, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, then that's a pretty good assumption. I mean... Sirius is such a kind of key figure that he's remarked on that he's not actually in Slytherin. So if there was another one that wasn't, you'd think it would be less remarkable on him. And also, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, So we've got our final comment in this section. Again, it's from Hufflepuff Scheme, but I couldn't leave it off because it's a good one. Um, And it's about um, Jacob, who was our guest host two episodes ago. um, One of his comments again um, on Puppet Master Dumbledore. And it says, also, when you were all discussing Jacob's reaction to his own podcast question of the week, you brought up the Dumbledore as puppet master theory again. And this made me think that while the previous three books offer strong evidence for this theory, this book shows that Dumbledore's plans begin to crash at his feet. Harry's name coming out of the goblet is the biggest signpost where we turn from Dumbledore as as puppet master to events and circumstances beyond his control. And it is here where we begin to discover the impurities of the White Albus. Before, he seems like this beacon of purity and constancy, but in this book we begin to see his faults and fears. The things he cannot control and the things that will eventually kill him. We discover the nuance of Dumbledore, 
and his puppeteering days seem to be numbered. Wow. I really enjoy that last sentence, I just wanted to say. Um, I think that this is partially true and partially not true, specifically because of one sentence that comes up in the chapter we're going to be discussing later, so I'll bring it up again um, when we get there. I don't want to jump ahead too much. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to hold this I one th- in the back of my head. I think it's a really interesting comment because I have so many issues with later Dumbledore. The idea of him as puppet master is one of the main issues I had. Um, so to have him being puppet master in the first three books and then kind of losing that towards the end um, kind of go against, goes against what I was previously thinking. So I might have to reevaluate as I go back through the reread. But I, I can definitely see that some aspects he's losing control of. Um, and I guess it's what I worry about, whether he was still in control and knew that the bad things were going on um, and just kind of lets them happen anyway. Now I think we're going to move to our post question of the week responses. And our podcast question last week had to do with Mad-Eye Moody, since it was his chapter, and it was saying how based... Like, the Mad-Eye Moody we see see in Goblet of Fire, how much of it is Barty Crouch being his- Barty Crouch Jr. being himself, and how much of it is him trying to, like, act on Moody's characteristics. This first comment comes from Feather Sickle. I honestly believe that Little Crouch- that Little Crouch studied Mad-Eye to a great extent to be able to impersonate him. He also had tons of information available to him since his father worked for the Ministry. I think about 95% of the book we see are real characteristics of Mad-Eye just acted out by Little Crouch. I like this name that we're giving him. <laughs> little Crouch. <laughs> little Crouch. Little. The only instances where I see Little Crouch give away or <laughs> give away or drive away from Mad-Eye's character is one, when he removes Harry from the pitch after Voldemort's very gross return, and two, when he turns Draco into a ferret. First is obviously explained by Dumbledore in the book. The second, I think this was a lot to do with keeping Harry out of harm's way to ensure little Crouch's master, master's return, but also a way of a way of getting at Draco's father for roaming free and denouncing Voldemort to the public to save his own behind. Unlike Mr. Malfoy, little Crouch did not denounce his master and therefore feels justified in messing with his son. For a little fun. I really hope that Voldemort calls him Little Crouch also. <laughs> little Crouch. <laughs> just imagine that. <laughs> little Crouch, get over here. I love it. Okay. I love it. Apart from <laughs> Little Crouch, what do you guys think of that? I want to believe that some of what we're seeing is actually Barty Crouch Jr. And I would like to think it's more than 90 f- 95% fake. So I want to be on... The baddie side for some reason. I'm not I'm sure. I'm on the opposite why. just because I've mentioned this before how much it bothers me that, like, we get attached to Mad Eye and then it's like, oh, JK, it's not actually Mad Eye. So I would feel a lot better about myself if it was, like, totally him, just not him. It's interesting that the idea of Draco being turned into a ferret is an example of not Mad Eye. Um, because I, I think that Mad Eye probably does have that sense of humor and would be happy to do it. Probably not attacking a student, he'd probably know not to do that, but McGonagall doesn't seem surprised that he's done it, just kind of upset that he has. Um, so I'm not sure how much of Little Crouch <laughs> that shows. Um, Can we make that our episode? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Little Crouch. Why not? Anyway. 
Alright, uh, so this next comment comes from Dolphin Patronus. Interesting. Okay. I think it is very plausible that Barty, Barty Jr. Okay, <laughs> has been using his invis- invisibility cloak for more than sneaking around the Quidditch World Cup. He very well could have managed to find a way to do some type of surveillance, magical or otherwise, on Moody for any length of time once he shook off his father's imperious curse. He likely had months to learn how to become Moody. He is obviously a very intelligent, skilled wizard. He did get 12 owls, and he can clearly act. So while we physically see Barty Jr. in his polyjuice-induced disguise, I believe he most likely was able to perfect his Moody impersonation. How else would he be able to fool Dumbledore for so many months? I said he's just... He's just an actor, had a dream gone wrong. He's living out the role of a lifetime. (laughs) Is this how Eric is going to justify uh, his defense of Barty Crouch Jr.? I think the problem with this comment is that doesn't Moody see through invisibility cloaks? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he would. Right, so I don't think this is plausible. At least that part of it, but he could have thought of another way of doing surveillance. And you have to remember that Moody has all of those dark detectors as well. Like, That's right? That's yeah. He would have recognized something. So we can just attribute it all to little Crouch's acting ability. Gets, gets the Tony. I think he would have he would have known Moody from when he was younger as well. I think I said this last week, but um, you know, he was the son of a ministry official who was working with Moody all the time. So I, I do think he would have had kind of a great knowledge of how he acted before he went to. Um, went to Azkaban so he could just replicate that from his memory. All right. Well, now we're going to move into our discussion of this week's chapter. Chapter 14 of Adakadavra. The Unforgivable Curses. And at the beginning of this chapter, they makes note that not much has happened in the past couple of days. Um, Harry <laughs> mentions that, or we get from the, narr- um, the narrator's perspective that Snape, it says, seemed to have attained new levels of vindictiveness over the summer. So I was thinking about that. If there's any particular reasons why. I mean, Harry thinks that it's probably probably because Moody has taken the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. And again, Snape has been left out. But do we really think that's why he's still upset? I mean, that's happened a couple of years now. Is there something else that may have been propelling this... this uh, in, Intensity with Snape. When does Dumbledore start searching for Horcruxes? Um, isn't it not until the um the Fifth snake year? attack on Mister Weasley? Right. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. Because yeah. I thought that maybe um, it, it could be something like Snape Dumbledore like, work Horcrux together. Related. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's you know the whole in essence divided conversation. I think that's when he right. decides that it actually was Horcruxes. Hmm. Okay. Um. But I do think that um, by this point, Moody has started searching Snape's office, and I think he is keeping an eye on Snape um, already. Or Crouch Jr., not Moody. But um, I think that's already kind of at work and is undermining Snape's... That makes sense, because, yeah, in the next couple paragraphs, um, we catch that Snape and Moody have this building animosity throughout the castle. Yeah, yeah. I think also it's a combination of like um, Moody, almost, I, and I I don't know if this is movieism that I'm thinking of, of just like that he kind of like since his Barty Crouch Jr. makes like subtle references to like Snape's dark past, 
And I think that might put him on edge if that's a movie thing, then correct me. But also, um, you know, Snape at this point probably knows that Karkaroff's on his way or there or whatever. I can't remember at what point we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, another Death Eater buddy, like, there to make things complicated. So, homie is showing up. That's true. I hadn't thought about the Karkaroff aspect of it. Yeah. He's got a lot of things. Also, going on. you've got. Um, the Quidditch World Cup, the whole event's there. What yeah. does Snape think about those? I mean, he's betrayed his master and his master betrayed him in killing his only love. Um, imagine how amazing this story would be to hear from Snape's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, awesome. it's like... it's That would just be more... I think more than anybody. Like, I want to I'll try to dig out a couple of fanfics for you, Kat. <laughs> that would be awesome. No, yeah. it just... It, you know, everybody knows I'm not on the like Snape is a hero side, but still, I there's he comes up this in book like in every single topic. Snape is there, and I just I want to know his thoughts. I want to know more about him. Well, shortly after um, the Defense Against the Dark Arts um, lessons finally start for Gryffindor fourth years, um, and one of the first things Moody says when the lesson starts is that they will not be needing books, which immediately Ron gets very excited because he and books have a disagreement, it seems. Um, <laughs> Moody also talks about how he got a letter from Lupin describing what they had studied the year before. And while they seem pretty proficient in some things, particularly in creatures, um, they are very behind on curses. And Moody notes that he only has one year to get them up to speed already fulfilling the one-year stint of a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, um, which Ron hastily questions, um, and then Moody um, confirms that only one year, and then he's back to retirement. So, interesting, we get that right at the front in this book. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, we know that there's a curse on the position, but it seems like, I mean, this one's obviously intentional. So, can we say that this is because of the curse? Is, I mean... I'm not quite sure. Maybe Dumbledore's started to get worried. <laughs> so he's, he's literally saying, I'll hire you for a year, but I'm scared for your life, so I'm not going to get you past that. Right, I'm going <laughs> to let you go before anything happens yeah. to you. And I thought it was really nice that Lupin sent a letter. That was very considerate. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I imagine him sitting Pending in his, his little like, den house, which is what I picture. Everyone should listen to our Lupin episode because his story is tragic. And awesome. So, so sad. But uh, Moody says that he's going to get them started on dark curses, even though, um, illegal dark curses, I should note, even though that is something that is supposed to be reserved until the sixth year. Um, do we think that this is a good call on the part of the ministry to keep things like this until um, student sixth year? Because as we find out in this chapter, Dumbledore is on Moody's side for doing this earlier. That seems a little late to me. Um because I was if trying it's, to if think it's before. on six year, then that would assume it would not show up on their OWLs. But you also like remember yes, it's new like, level. that six. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how I feel because like six year is only sixteen, and sixteen is I feel like the age where you're getting mature things. Like mm-hmm. we see them go through like oh my, they're in their sixth year, but it's not like their sixth year of high school or something. Like they're basically going through like middle school or elementary school or whatever still through this that i don't know it is as much as it is useful and i think moody proves that uh i can almost understand the ministry's train of thought just because it is something so serious and i don't know if a 14 year old is going to be able to fully grasp like the weight of it 
Um, but I think I think that's the ministry's thought process, not necessarily true, because I think Moody proves that it is useful. But consider the most serious spell that we see Harry using um, in sixth year, um, which is Sectumsempra, which he knows, like, the, the, the writing beside it says four enemies. Um, so he knows it's going to be a spell that, you know, is attacking an enemy in the same way that, you know, a killing curse or something could be. He has no idea what it does. And he uses it very irresponsibly and, you know, Draco probably almost died because of it and would have died if Snape hadn't been nearby. Um, so, like, even in sixth year, he's still too immature to use dangerous spells properly. Um, so to give younger students the knowledge of these spells and how to use them um, is dangerous. You know, what would Draco do if he knew how to use Cruciatus curse and ha- didn't have the kind of regulations yeah. he would go. See, around but I think students. I think the opposite because I'm all for preventative measures, and I think that children are more curious about things they don't know about than things they do know about. So I think that teaching them in a classroom setting where they learn like the actual correct way. I mean, not that you want to teach them how to do these curses, but what I'm saying is like, we have the D.A.R.E. program growing up and it teaches kids about drugs or whatever. Probably half of those kids are still going to go out and do drugs, but the ones that were like properly taught about it will probably think about it before they do it. So I think that, you know, um, what's that little saying? Like the more, you know, so. Yeah, that kind of leads into the next question. I mean, we know that th- this is Crouch Jr. Lead, like making the choice. We don't know if Moody would have made the choice to do the uh, Unforgivables for fourth years. But what do we think Crouch's motivations are for wanting kids to be able to defend against illegal curses? I mean, is it this some exposure, kind of like what you're alluding to, Kat, that if they're seeing especially unforgivable curses, does that increase their likelihood of being of that like mind that this is the route I should take and then in some way lead them more to the dark Lord. I think no. Um, I think that he's kind of showboating a little bit. (laughs) I mean, obviously with the spiders and everything. Um, But I think that it is mostly for Harry's benefit in this scene, at least Um, like look at what happened to your parents here. Here it is. This is how they died. I kind of have to disagree a little bit in that I don't think he's doing it because, like, I'll look at what your parents are. I think he's fascinated while he's doing this curse as killing a spider and being like, I am standing in front of the only person that survived this. I think that's more his train of thought, more so than, like, being like, oh, this is how your parents died, haha. Like, I think, I think for him, he's just fascinated and while he's teaching it, like, that's all he could think right now is, like, this is how my, my master fell because this kid that's sitting sitting in front of me is the only person to have ever survived it. I think that's probably more his strain of thought. I agree. And I think that that goes hand in hand with the fact that he's also, I think he's also, like I said, like doing it for Harry, like to be like, look at how easily this, you know, look how easy your parents died. I can't believe that. See, I thought it was more calculated than that. Um, The whole putting the, uh, putting the, um, Imperius curse on them and seeing who can throw it off. I mean, he's literally testing Harry's abilities at that point. Um, right, and, and I mean... noting that Harry is able to throw it off. Right, yeah, um, I mean, that comes up in a later chapter, I think, and yeah. I, I was definitely going to mention that, that I think that, not so much in this chapter, but in a later chapter, he's definitely trying to gauge Harry's skill mm-hmm. level. That's a good for point. Sure, to find out. In that way, he's also um, 
testing the other students around him. I mean, none of these students will end up in the tournament apart from Harry. Um, but if he does it the same for older students, um, I mean, we see him using the Imperious Curse on Crumb during the, the maze scene at the very end. Um, so he's kind of testing who is susceptible to all of these things. Mm. Um, and kind of, I think he is just kind of scheming and working out kind of levels of all the kids that he's got under his control and how he can kind of employ them to do his bidding in the future. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the more funny things in this class setting is when uh, Moody starts asking about the unforgivable curses, Ron is one of the first people to throw up his hand and gets called on to answer the Imperious Curse instead of Hermione. So the world kind of ends for a moment because Hermione's not the first to answer. <laughs> um, but um, so Moody uh, mentions... He talks about the Imperious Curse first and how it gave the Ministry a lot of trouble in years past um, because they didn't know whether people were forced to act um, in whatever they were doing or if they were doing something on their free will. And of course, we know several, um, you know, Death Eaters, you know, former Death Eaters tried to defend themselves either by saying they did it because, you know, they felt threatened or we can expect they use the Imperious Curse. But this wouldn't just be limited to Death Eaters. I mean, this could be a lot of people. So it made me think, how do we think they may have done this? They being the ministry. Um, through intensive questioning, did they use Veritaserum? Which I think we can assume that there's not like a huge stock of that potion just used on everybody that pops up. So what kind of um, ways the ministry would figure out someone's true intentions? I think they couldn't use Veritaserum because if they did, then they would find out that Malfoy was a Death Eater. <laughs> um, I think it has to be more kind of unreliable methods like um, priori incantantum and and things like that, things that are more subjective and easier to hide. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was thinking. And that, like, if that's true, that creates like a very unstable um, and uncertain environment with this curse. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, we obviously, you know, the the killing curse has so much um, intense power in, in immediacy because it kills someone, but. The long-term effects of the Imperius curse are so, like, it unravels so many things. Because there's no, I don't think there really is, like, that hard solution of how to figure out. I mean, and it, again, that brings up, like, the issues of, is using something like Veritaserum, is that ethical or okay? You know, much like the um, memory charms on the muggles. Like, is that an okay, okay thing? Even if you used Veritaserum on someone who was under the Imperious Curse, would it actually show that they were under the Imperious Curse? Because if you give them Veritaserum and ask, did you do this thing? And they did, even if it wasn't their idea. I mean, well, they would have to, yeah. I mean, they'd have to reframe the question, like, were you under the, I mean, and they would have to, like, ask something, yeah, like, if you were under, were you under the Imperious Curse, which leads to the fact is, do they even know that they are? So. Could you answer? All right, I'm going to run with what you said, Caleb. Like, Hypothetically, let's say if they didn't know they were under the Imperious Curse and then they were at, put under the Veritaserum and asked if they were, could you answer something that you yourself didn't know? No, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, does a Veritaserum, I, I mean, how does that work, I guess is the question. Is that, is it reading, like, your thoughts or is it reading your subconscious? So like, what is it bringing out? That's really tough. Um, it actually made me think of, I know you started reading Divergent Cat. I don't know if any of you guys have. Um, but one of the, in Divergent, they're split up into f 
factions, and one of the factions is called Candor, which is all based on honesty. And they have this method of um, where they force people to tell the truth, the complete truth, because they value truth above all else. And like it's physically and psychologically impossible for anyone to to lie or even to bend the truth. Um, I, I mean, there's a little bit of discrepancy there with one with the main character in one scene, but like that's kind of what I think about here. Like, I don't think it would be physically possible for someone to to lie or even bend the truth um i guess this is more for catching people who are lying about being under it so it's catching the death eaters who are saying that they were under the imperious curse rather than the people who are actually are under the imperious curse trying to make them see that they are death eaters um so i guess we're looking at it from the the wrong angle here hmm. um slightly that's true um, they would probably have to be accused or something of that saying, nature are you a death eater with more the <laughs> That's probably true. Are you a Death Eater? I just right. I've wondered how they've never noticed the tattoos before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they are pretty kind of obvious, obvious, but everybody yeah. wears yeah. long sleeves. That's true. True. I mean I could have one on, on my arm for all you know. <laughs> <laughs> a side question to that is we do see the Imperious Curse used quite a few times in the series, but we never get a for sure answer as to how it ends. Does does it just fade away? I mean we know it's used Later in the series, um, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in disguise and Gringotts and things like that, but I mean, what if the what if like someone gives um, like does an imperious curse and they like leave that person forever? Does that like just stay, or does it have like a set time limit of how long it lasts? Can you do other magic at the same time? I guess you'd have to be able to if you were kind of casting it on um, several people. Yeah. I've always kind of seen it like um, you know like. Uh, golems where you put a task in someone in the the golem's mouth and it has to do that task and can't be stopped um i've always kind of seen the imperious curses like that so you you use the imperious curse set a task and then that person has to do that thing yeah that's what i was thinking i think it was more it was more like um depending on what you were going to have them do if you told them to go sit in a corner and never leave you could probably walk away and they would never leave that corner but if it was Mm -hmm. Like, giving them a task, like, go find so-and-so, they would do that, and then I think it would I be I think it might have to do over. with the concentration mm-hmm. level of the person, like, putting the Imperious Curse, because just in how, um, how Moody mm-hmm. says for all these unforgivable curses, like, that they require an intense level of concentration, and you're saying, like, you can all point a vodka cadaver at me and I wouldn't mm-hmm. get as much of a nosebleed or something like that. Uh, I think in the same way when Harry Imperia, Imperia rises the goblin later um, improves like he's like focused on it kind of and he's you know thinking about it and he actually like does it um i think it it wears off i think after a while just because the person that's doing the cursing isn't like focused on it isn't it the um the waterfall is the thing that breaks it so it would have lasted if they hadn't right. gone through the waterfall oh that's true right that's that is what breaks yeah. it so we don't really know but for i sure. think hmm. You know, I think just like with any type of the magic that it has to have some kind of focus. Um, so they move on from the Imperius curse and Neville answers the Cruciatus curse and um, Hermione is devastated because she once again has been passed out <laughs> to answer a question. <laughs> uh, but we obviously will find out later why it's important that Neville answers that question. It's not answered here. Um, and of course, Moody explains the the... The curse. Um, there's not much to discuss really on that right now, but finally he moves on to the killing curse, which Hermione finally gets her shining moment and answers. Um, and I picked up that when Moody um, 
says that she has it right. It says he responds with a slight smile, twisting his lopsided mouth. And I wonder if this is a little bit of Crotch Jr. peeking out and he can't quite help himself at the excitement of like the thrill of like talking about a curse that he obviously is very fond of. I think so for sure. I think it's one of those subtle clues. Mm-hmm. The OGM, as we've yeah. now shown. Because like before. when we don't know it's Crouch, we're all just like, Moody's like one creepy, weird old dude who like creepy. gets sick, <laughs> right. sick pleasure from talking about this stuff. But when you know it's Crouch, like there's obviously a deeper meaning. I think he's really just genuinely impressed that Harry's survived it as well. Like, he has that curiosity and that kind of pride, I guess, mm. in that he's looking at Harry being a super powerful wizard. Um, I've always seen Crouch as a kind of a, a power-hungry person more than a good or bad person. Obviously, that kind of, you know, does lead him to bad things. But I think he does have that kind of genuine respect for the amazing magical skill of someone who's managed to survive such a deadly curse. So he's in awe at this moment. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Um, and after the lesson, um, when they leave, they they come across Neville, who is very upset uh, for obvious reasons. And um, before they can really deal with Neville, Moody comes along and takes Neville away to console him. And so, and I, I think this is pretty clear, but... Do we think that, you know, Moody's, Crouch's actions, I should say, this early um, are motivated by trying to get Harry, his ultimate goal is to get Harry to the graveyard. So he's getting close with Neville to help Harry to succeed in the tournament so that he can eventually get to that port key first to get to the graveyard. Yes. He definitely gives him the book at this point. So, I mean, that that item is planted there at that point. Right. Planted. Um, (laughs) Haha, pun intended. (laughs) Sorry. Um... (laughs) But also you have to remember that the thing that Barty Crouch went to Azkaban for was the torture of Neville's parents. Right. Mm-hmm. So to actually, you know, pinpoint Neville out in this very first scene that we see him as a as a teacher is kind of horrific. Um I said in my in my chapter summary on Facebook that I was kind of worried that, you know, what went down in that room, what's he actually doing with Neville at this moment. I hope he actually did have the nice kind of comforting chat with him rather than, you know, cursed him and mem- like removed his memory or something. I don't know. Um, but it, it does kind of ask questions. I mean, Neville does feel a lot better after this conversation. And it's all because, you know, Moody or Crouch has praised him um, and his ability um, within, you know, herbology and has passed on this information from um, Madame Sprout. Um so why is Moody or Crouch doing this if he is, you know, he's responsible for this guy's death, uh, for, the, for, the, for his parents, not death, whatever, for his parents being cursed and being out of his life? Goblet of Fire being yeah. my favourite book, and I've probably read it more than the other books, and I've seen the movie more than all the other movies. I'd never actually made the connection <laughs> that the person that was comforting <laughs> Neville during this was the person that tortured it. Like, that's the most obvious thing ever. And I just never, I was always, because like I said, always so distracted by like, oh, this is Moody. I always forget that it's not Moody. That like, wow, feeling kind of dumb. <laughs> but yeah. I think he gets <laughs> some sort of sadistic pleasure out of the fact that he can like manipulate yeah. the scenario like that. Like he he thinks he is like king right now. The fact that he is like, um, uns- not in a sincere way com- consoling the son of the people he tortured to near death 
to like mental instability. Um, but he's actually doing it to like further his own goal. Like he, I, I feel like above all, actually that, that Barty Crouch Jr. Just loves being like this, like manipulator and like controlling all these, like, I mean, in a very different way than Dumbledore does. Like he gets like a sick pleasure out of it. I agree. He's very much like, um, the Joker in, yeah. in, in this sense to bring up, you know, like a Batman reference here, but very much the, the, in the twister, the, uh, yeah. what I'm looking for, the puppet master. Yeah. Yeah. So we have two puppet masters and they're just doing different plays. <laughs> yes. Um Poor Neville. Yeah, definitely. Um and as as you mentioned, Rosie, he um does Neville um after Ron and Harry get to their d- dormitory, um they find Neville reading Magical Water Plants of the Mediterranean, which he gets from Moody, um and he talks about how he got that. Um and Harry and Ron go to um start working on their divination homework that they got earlier. Um, and like good Gryffindors, they just start to make it up because there are better things to do. I totally get that. Um, but it is kind of ironic because the things that they, I mean, we know that. I love this bit. We know that Joe does not do anything unintentionally. Like she, there is purpose to everything. So it's ironic how real some of these made up (laughs) predictions actually are because Harry says that he'll be in danger of burns. Which we know <laughs> that happens because he's getting ready mm-hmm. to face a dragon. Dragon. <laughs> um, and then it mentions a couple of Brilliant. other things, and I legitimately can't f- remember what they run into in this book to know how um, true or mm-hmm. relatable related to the truth they may be. But Ron um, makes up that he'll develop a cough, and he also mentions that he'll lose treasured possessions. I can't really remember. Um, what um. What's the timeline on this? This is like really early in the year, right? Right, yeah. This is before yeah. the Triwizard Tournament's like even kicked off. This is right. still the first week of term because that's their first lesson yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. So it's, it's the first Thursday, I think, it is of term. Okay, because I was thinking about it and I think one of the predictions is like Harry's, um, Ron suggests for Harry that he's going to get stabbed in the back by yes, a friend. yeah. That's and he one. says, but he says that like on Wednesday, that's going to happen. And so I was like, oh, is it like actually that Wednesday? But it's clearly not. <laughs> right. Um, but it would be really funny if Halloween or the, um, yeah, it was Halloween when they picked the names out of the goblet. Right. Um, if that was like a Wednesday that year, I just think that would be. Because Ron would, that's when Ron feels betrayed by Harry. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Harry like gets the proverbial stab in the back, I suppose. Yeah. So um, Harry notices that Fred and George, uh, we get another instance of where the two are mysteriously working on things um, and we don't really know what it was and I think it mentions like Harry thinks that it might have to do with Weasley's wizard wheezes but um, he would assume that Lee Jordan would be involved too if that was the case so he rules that out Um, and then he picks up a quote from George um, in which George says no that sounds like we're accusing him got to be careful so are they talking about um, are they talking about still trying to get money from Bagman at this point yeah. yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, because they're sending him the letters or whatever, right? Yeah. They're still being nice at this point, so they're trying not to sound like they're accusing him. Right. Right. Um, and then before, uh, well, I guess Harry has to turn away because George, or one of the twins, I can't remember which one, catches him. It was um, George. Okay, yeah. George sees him looking over, um, and then they head up to bed. Um, and then Hermione returns, and S-P-E-W is bored. It is, <laughs> it is here. <laughs> And it is here to stay for a while. Um, so Spew. I totally forgot about this. 
um, until I reread it. But obviously, SBAW stands for the Society of for the Promotion of Elfish Welfare. But she originally says that she the longer she says she wanted it to be called <laughs> "Stop the Outrageous Abuse of Our Fellow Magical Creatures" and campaign for a change in their legal status. So if you want to make an acronym of all the capitalized things <laughs> she uses there, it sounds something like Solomphicals. And that's what it would be. But alas, she says it cannot fit on the badge. So she shortened it to SPEW. I love it. That's the title of the episode. Solomphicals. It definitely is. That's definitely the title of the episode. I love it. Um, but she, so she goes into her explanation of what um, SPEW is, and Ron, of course, combats her. And this quote, man, homeboy just does not say thanks to Ron most of the time. He says, they like being enslaved. Probably not the things we want to say out loud, or even think for that matter. But, um, Hermione, of course, is not having it. She explains that the um, organization now has three people because um, her, Ron and her, um, Harry are going to join, of course, that Ron <laughs> is going to be the treasurer. Not sure why she thought that would be a good idea. I love that. But uh, he's going to be the one holding the money. And Harry's going to be the secretary, so Harry might want to start taking down some notes because this is their I first official meeting. It it's so, so funny. Like, everything about this is hilarious. I love the way she says it. Like, Harry, like, why aren't you taking minutes? Like... <laughs> like, Get to um, it. Hello. I think it would have been hilarious if he, like, before they cut to where Hedwig shows up, if like he actually was reaching for a quill and some parchment. I think that would have been. Oh yeah, because you know he funny. would have. He's not gonna. He, Harry doesn't say no to Hermione. Um, no, definitely not. Yeah, but as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, they do get saved by Hedwig finally showing up. Like Harry. Um, earlier was wondering if Hedwig's like had gone astray and never coming back but finally the owl comes back and um, it's finally a note from Sirius um, responding to Harry's concern about the dream and his scar hurting and all that and um, Sirius says that he is now traveling north because he has heard other strange rumors that are in some way related to what Harry told him we have no idea what that is at this point Um, and that we um the, the letter mentions that Dumbledore um, getting Mad-Eye to teach um, is more than just wanting him as a teacher because Dumbledore is um, listening to... I can't remember how... I need to look it up to see. It says... It said, I've left my, my iPad in the other room. It says something like, um, if Dumbledore is starting to read the signs as others are. Yeah. And this was the point yeah. that I wanted to bring up earlier. Yeah, that's what I figured. I don't think that he is, I think was my point. And I think very much like in... I can't remember if this happens in the book. I know what happens in the movie where when McGonagall and Snape are all talking about, or are we going to let him do this? And Dumbledore's like, yes, I think we have to. I think that that is part of this whole thing. Like, he's reading the signs. He knows that something is happening. He doesn't quite know exactly what yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that he is still very much in control of, at this, of the situation at this time, even if, if- he's unsure of what's going to happen. If he had managed to get the actual Moody, then yes, he would be in control. Um, But I think he is being undermined. um, And a lot of things happen that I'm not entirely sure that he actually does find out about. Um, So he still thinks he's in control and... Like he's he's trying to keep control, but I don't think he manages it in this book. Yeah, I think think the the Mad-Eye thing... 
it is sad that he he didn't know that, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's something that yeah. definitely got past him. Yeah. The only time he suspected is when Moody took him away, took Harry away from the maze at the end, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think that is the one thing that got past him. I think pretty much everything else, the murmurs that, you know, Voldemort was doing whatever he was doing. I definitely think Dumbledore is aware of all of that, for sure. Um, but after the letter, um, now I'm trying to think of what it is, but Harry... Oh, Harry gets really upset because he thinks that um, by telling Sirius all of this, he is bringing Sirius um, back into danger, particularly of getting caught because he's obviously um, like on the run right now. And so he heads up to bed without Ron and he lies awake thinking about this for um, a while. And the chapter closes with more of um, a hint that Neville is clearly not okay because it mentions that if Harry would have noticed that... Um, Neville wasn't snoring as usual. He would have known that he was not the only one awake. So we know... Right, if Harry wasn't being so self-obsessed, right? Yeah. Oh, that's fair. (laughs) Just want to give him a hug. Which one? Neville. Okay. Yeah. It's like Harry... (laughs) Neville, okay. Uh, Yeah. And that's where the chapter ends. I think this is a great chapter. Um, I feel like... There's a lot of There's really... so much important detail in it. Yeah, it's like a really it's a that you don't it's take one of the last also like yeah because right. this is probably I mean they ha- there's a lot of chapters before we get into the action like the heavy like stuff of the Triwizard Tournament and I almost forget that until I like went to go sit down and reread this and I'm like God like there is what chapter around like fourteen <laughs> or something yeah and we haven't even gotten to yeah. like mm-hmm. the the plot really. It's still the so, first school. Yeah. yeah. It There's a lot of setup here. It's funny if this was any if this was any of the like first three books, we would be three quarters of the way I down. mean, and this is yeah. the one that like <laughs> originally Warner Brothers was thinking of splitting into two, which I'm glad they didn't. Alright, so we're gonna jump into um this feature that we have brought back, our special feature. Pottermore in depth. Well, Harry, the Daily Prophet readers want to hear the in-depth scoop on you. Um, well, I... Uh... Absolutely brilliant. Ignore the quill. Tell me more, Mr. Potter. And this week again, um, we're going to cover some of the new Pottermore information. This week we're going to talk about the Flu Network. So there's a lot of information in here. A lot of it is like one singular story. Some of the information we kind of already knew or could have hinted at. So I'm just going to kind of quickly read through and summarize this. So she says that the flu network has been in use for centuries, um, and it is uncomfortable, as we see, like, many times in the series. But unlike broomsticks, the network can be used without fear of breaking the statute of secrecy. And secondly, unlike apparition, there is little or no danger of serious injury, with the exception of splicing. Um, what am I talking about? This is a flu network. Oh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was Where thinking about we? splicing because I read apparition. And you mean splinching, I think. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, and thirdly, obviously, the flu network can be used um, to transport children, elderly, and the infirm. Um, which makes me wonder. Throw the granny in the fire. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. With the owls. <laughs> um, no, but like. Why couldn't they have found, you know, a fireplace to use when Ron was all splinched to travel? Because they were in a forest. I know, but like, they like <laughs> could have found one to they use. They could have built one. They could have found some bricks <laughs> and gone to building a <laughs> fireplace right there. Anyway, so she goes on to say that nearly every witch or wizard um, home is connected to the flu network. You can disconnect your fireplace um, by the use of a simple spell. 
but reconnecting it requires permission of the Ministry of Magic um, because they do regulate the flu service um, and help prevent muggle fireplaces from being inadvertently joined up. Although, as we know, they can be temporarily connected um, to arrange for emergencies, such as, you know, when the Weasleys pick up Harry. To go to a sporting event. Yeah, emergency. (laughs) I mean, that's such an emergency. Harry gets the special treatment always. It goes on to say that in addition to domestic fireplaces, there are over or around a thousand fireplaces across Britain connected to the flu network, including those at the ministry um, in various wizarding shops and inns, again, as we see. you know, when Harry goes into Bergen and Borks, Borgen and Burks having a day, and the Leaky Cauldron. So the flu network is clearly just a, a UK thing. Not necessarily. Do we think there's separate ones for different countries? It's probably like the equivalent of the tube network or, or the, like a train network. Oh, so okay. all of the ones in England are connected and maybe you've got kind of a Euro tunnel to, the, to France or whatever <laughs> and then you can go somewhere else. That would be incredible if like, just say you had a fireplace, Rosie, and you could connect to Laura's fireplace. I mean, that would be awesome. I mean, she's still like legitimately 22 hours from there, but yeah. Oh, but they probably have fireplaces there. <gasps> maybe they're secretly connected. Anyway, okay, just mind wandering. Okay. Okay, it says that the fireplaces at Hogwarts are not generally connected, although there have been occasions, as we know, like with Umbridge, when one or more has been tampered with, often without the staff's knowledge. So that makes me want, like, how do we find out that hers is connected? She brags about it, doesn't she? That doesn't make sense, because Snape summons uh, Lupin in his, right? Lupin, I want a word. Maybe it's like the general fireplaces, but like the ones in teachers' offices are. Um, but the or idea the Gryffindor common room. Yeah, but yeah, because Sirius uses it to get to the Gryffindor common room. Right. Discrepancies. I was going to say, is this a hole? It may be. <laughs> well, I mean, she is allowed to make mistakes. But it does say not generally connected, so it, it does mean that you know some of them are, just not all of them. And I guess there are going to be hundreds and thousands of fireplaces around that giant castle so maybe it's just the main ones yeah the offices and the common rooms or something but if you're going to have a room that you can only get into via a portrait it's a bit bad to get it then connected to a major transportation network maybe they can make it so that it's like you're only able to put heads through (laughs) i don't know (laughs) put limitations on it or something but you know whole point of prisoner of azkaban when they're like how did sirius black get into the castle if he can get his head through a fireplace it's not exactly hard (laughs) Maybe you can only leave Hogwarts by fireplace. Maybe you can't come into Hogwarts by fireplace because of the protections around the castle. I don't know, something to ponder, I suppose. Um, So it goes on to say that although generally reliable, the flu network, um, mistakes obviously can happen as... um, As we know, when Harry sucks in the bit of ash and says diagonally. (laughs) Yeah, instead of diagonally. Um, So then it goes into this amazing story, which... I'm just going to kind of summarize here because I really want um, everybody to go to Pottermore and actually read it for yourself because one, I'm a really bad storyteller and two, there is a clip of Joe actually talking about the story herself. Such an awesome new thing with Pottermore. I love it. I know. It's the first, this is the first moment that they've done it on and they're definitely going to continue to do it in the future, which it is so awesome to click on that page and like hear Joe talk about this stuff herself. Um, Excuse me. So I'm just going to summarize it. So the most notorious um, in- incident of accidental misdirection, as it is put in this uh, clip, um, happened in 1855 when a woman named Violet Tilliman, um, she had a really bad um, row with her husband and leapt into the living room fire. She was crying 
and said that she wants to go to her mother's house, but she was sobbing and she was hiccuping. Okay, keep that in mind. So several weeks, several weeks later, her husband was disconcerned about how dirty the house was becoming. There were no clean pots and his socks needed washing. Oh, somebody's phone is ringing. That's exciting. That's the type of stuff that happens when we record kids. Okay. Um, and so he goes over to his mother-in-law's house to get his wife back. And his mother-in-law's like, I don't know where she is. She's not here. And so he puts up a poster campaign and writes to the Daily Prophet and, you know, time goes by and nobody can find her. They have no idea where she went. Um, people stopped using the flu network because they were so scared of getting lost. So I guess he goes on and lives a fairly boring life. I don't, it doesn't really say much about that. But about 20 years later, after Albert, that's the husband's name, dies, Violet resurfaces and she comes out and she says that actually um, when she stepped into the fire that day and mumbled that she wanted to go to her mother's house, um, the flu network thought that she said she wanted to go to the house of Myron Osterhaus, a handsome wizard who lived in um, Bury, Bury, Bury St. Edmunds, Bury St. Edmunds, and um, they fell in love and have been living together for the last 20 years with their seven children, so... There it is, the end of my very bad story. Go listen to uh, Joe tell it much better, more eloquently on Pottermore. So It is a great story. It, it just the fact that like she's written that story is kind of crazy. How many of these little stories like, she has in her do mind? Do you think she like just came up with it for Pottermore's sake, or did she always have that? No, no. I think she had it. Definitely. I And I've like had nightmares about this happening. Not, like, legitimate, like, sleeping nightmares, but, like, I've thought about this before. She must have, like, crazy security systems. Imagine if her house got broken into and, like, this type of stuff oh was God. gone. Knocking on wood right now. But, um, so there's this little bit, you know how Joe always puts, like, her own little notes in there. And it says that, um, she, flu, she came up with the name, um, from the flu that you find on a chimney, obviously. She goes on to say that, don't ask her what a flu is because she couldn't tell you. Which I find really funny. She said that she she invented it because she needed a way for particularly young wizards and witches to travel around. um, Because she had (laughs) created the um, Statue of Secrecy, which was very inconvenient. Um, So immediately (laughs) it made it difficult um, for them to travel around, especially long distances by magical means. So she said that they thought they needed something discreet. And that's how the flu network came about. And it was a way of moving from house to house without ever being seen by muggles. She said, but it was also fun and comical to have it a little bit difficult to use so that you could easily make a mistake in where you ended up. So Joe showing her her funny side again. Yeah, so that ends our special feature for this week. So this week on the podcast, our podcast question of the week this time deals with the unforgivable curses because that's what the chapter was about. So what we would like to know, very little information is known on um, the creation of the unforgivable curses. We have a little bit, but... uh, we want to know what what was the motivation behind creating these uh, curses? Who was the one that created them? And um, just what you think a bit, go a bit deeper into the history of what you think it is. Why were they originally used? Yeah, what the story of people it. Have used them Yeah, the, just, yeah, give us what you think the story of the Unforgivable Curses are, more so than, you know, what the wiki says. Well, thank you to everyone who's actually watching us in our Google Hangout right now. Um, For those of you listening on our podcast, you might have missed a few things um, that our Google Hangout viewers will have just seen. 
Um, but our Google Hangout will actually be live on our YouTube channel, so you guys can go back and watch it again if you'd like to. But thank you very much for joining us, if you've managed to stick through the hour and a half that we've done this episode in. Um, so if you would like to be on the show, right now this is one of our only all-host episodes that we've had in a while, but usually you know we have a guest, so if you'd like to be a guest on our show, head over to our website and check out the Be On The Show page at alohamora.mugglenet.com. Please have the appropriate audio equipment so that you sound lovely. And in the meantime, subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to just keep in touch with us in the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at AlohamoraMN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Skype at 206-GO-ALBUS. That's 206-462-5287. You can call on your cell phone, too, if you want it, I suppose. Um, and we also have this really awesome new feature called Audioboo. So you can go directly on our website, and as long as you have a microphone on your computer, you just click a little button that says record, and you can send us a message. And we'll play it on the show if we like it, much like we do our voicemails. So that's live, so go over and check it out now. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our store, which has so many great things to, um, to for you guys. Uh, things like t-shirts, including short and long sleeve, because it's starting to get pretty chilly out there. Uh, tote bags, sweatshirts, flip-flops, water bottles, travel mugs, <laughs> and more coming soon. I just feel like I'm it's on not, like, a variety special or something. But, <laughs> it's not chilly enough to not have the flip-flops. No, right. right. That is true. Although never, it right. will never be not the proper weather for the flip-flops. Anybody who buys the flip-flops will send you like a bonus gift and send we it. We will. It'll be like a sticker or something, but you know, like worth it all right cat says it finally there are ringtones and where they can now see those on there's a link on the main page right cat there is it's in the menu yep check those out because they are ringtones um from our theme song which we all shimmy and dance to but also under the podcast tab on our main site just a nice little link there um you can also find our app which is hopefully seemingly available worldwide. We know there are a couple of issues in some countries, I think particularly for Android. Italy. Um, in Italy, sorry. Um, we are working on it, hopefully. We're, we're trying our best to get it as worldwide as possible, um, but do check your local providers, um, and hopefully you'll be able to find it somewhere. Um, and in our app, you can find transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and much more. Um, prices do vary depending on the country, obviously, Um, But check it out, because it's definitely worth it. All right, well, that's going to do it for this special episode of Alohomora. Thanks for joining us on the Google Hangout, or just listening to us the usual way. We appreciate you. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. I'm Laura Riley. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 52 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I cannot finish my promo if I keep getting interrupted. Finally.